Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors for the journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure today to be introducing Taylor Fravel, who is an associate professor of political science and a member of the Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Taylor is a specialist in Chinese military strategy, among other things, and in fact has a book coming out soon on Chinese military strategy since 1949. He is also a principal investigator of the Maritime Awareness Project, uh, all things kind of strategic in East and Southeast Asia. So it's a real pleasure to have Taylor with us today. Well, it's a pleasure then to welcome Taylor Fravel. Thanks, Alan. Okay, so uh, before we focus on the South China Sea dispute, particularly because it's been in the news, especially around the uh, Law of the Sea Award, I wanted to take us uh, to your article. It's a Flashpoint article for Global Summetry, and in fact, it's gone up in advance access, the piece titled explaining China's escalation over the Senkaku Daiyu Islands. And uh, these are generally just referred to as the East China Sea dispute. And my understanding is that the dispute kind of really figures around the question of sovereignty, particularly between China and Japan. So maybe you can describe to our audience what the issues are here in this dispute. Uh, sure, Alan. So the dispute in the East China Sea has two separate but related components. Uh, the first is the sovereignty dispute that you just mentioned over what the Japanese call the Senkakus and the Chinese and the Taiwanese call the Diaoyu Islands. The dispute intensified in the 1970s after a UN-sponsored survey from the late 1960s indicated there might be vast deposits of hydrocarbons in the waters around the islands. And so this brings us to the second element of the dispute, which is that they play a role in how the East China Sea would be delimited or divided under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, in particular between China and Japan. And here the two sides have conflicting claims. And Japan has claimed a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone from the islands, which bumps out its EEZ claim closer uh, to China. And so it's a very thorny dispute uh, because it involves not just questions of territorial sovereignty, but also questions of maritime demarcation. And it's especially thorny because of the history of the relationship between China and Japan, which continues to be unsettled to this day, going back to Japan's occupation of parts of China during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And maybe for the audience, you might describe a little bit of the meaning of EEZ or Z. Okay, sure. Uh, so uh, under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is a convention that most states in the international system have acceded to, although not all, but most have, it outlines a system of maritime zones and the rights that states enjoy within those zones. For our purposes, or for the purposes of assessing uh, maritime disputes, I think three zones are most important to understand. Uh, the first is the territorial sea, and this 
refers to uh, 12 nautical miles seaward uh, from a state's coastline. And in this zone, a state enjoys more or less absolute sovereignty with exceptions for innocent passage of ships that are passing through the zone. But otherwise, it can be conceived of more or less as an extension of a state's sovereignty over its own territory. Then seaward out 200 nautical miles, it's what's known as the Exclusive Economic Zone, or the EEZ. And within this zone, the coastal state enjoys exclusive rights to the resources both in the water column and in the seabed. And typically that would refer to fish in the water column and hydrocarbons and other minerals that might be in the seabed. A third zone is the continental shelf, which depends on the shape of a coastal state's continental shelf. But if it sort of extends slow and steady from a state's coastline and does not drop off precipitously, then states can claim a continental shelf out to 350 nautical miles. But that only gives them rights to resources in the seabed and doesn't give them any rights within the water column. Hmm. So just so I understand, if there were hydrocarbons around the Senkakus mm-hmm. and it were defined that Japan had a 200-mile EEZ, they would therefore have the monopoly in terms of exploration around those islands, islets, whatever they are? Mm-hmm. Of course, when it's contested, of course, the other claimant states, in this case China and Taiwan separately, both have claims to the Senkakus, would claim that they had the exclusive right to those resources. And so that's what makes these disputes so thorny. If, mm-hmm. if you believe that the island generates a maritime entitlement and that maritime entitlement encloses some vast uh, deposit of natural resources and it increases the value of contesting that land feature because it allows you to gain access to those resources. I should add, however, that uh, whatever the UN found in the late 1960s has not been borne out. And so whatever structures exist there, they don't appear to at least have large amounts of hydrocarbons that can be easily uh, developed and exploited. There are hydrocarbons to the north of the Senkakus, right along what Japan claims is a median line between China and Japan in the East China Sea. And China has been developing them. Mm -hmm. has drilled several wells on the Chinese side of this median line, but Japan fears that China might be sucking some of the hydrocarbons from across the line. So hydrocarbons do play a role in the East China Sea, sort of maritime demarcation dispute more generally, but actually not due to their proximity to the Senkaku Islands. Okay. And so hopefully for our listeners, if they want a more detailed kind of discussion of the dispute between Japan and China, they will go to your article to get some of that. Let me try and ask a kind of summary question, which is, has the East China Sea disputes between China and Japan significantly impacted China-Japan relations? It depends on what metrics you use. If you look at, say, Chinese tourists going to Japan, I think there are record high numbers. (laughs) (laughs) So sort of at the person-to-person level, there hasn't been a huge impact. If you look at Japanese FDI, I actually don't know the latest figures, but certainly after 2012, there was a decline Mm -hmm. uh, in Chinese FDI to Japan. So that would certainly harm kind of the economic foundation of the relationship, although I don't know the current state. But politically, if one looks at political indicators, the consequence of the dispute has been that the governments have had a much harder time having high-level meetings, specifically Mm -hmm. between Prime Minister Abe and President Xi Jinping, although they did meet one or two days ago on the sidelines of the G20, but that was the first meeting that they had had in over a year. And then this also limits, I think, the ability of sort of ministerial-level talks to make progress. And so China and Japan, before 2012, were negotiating a series of confidence-building measures 
mm -hmm. uh, that were designed specifically to help maintain stability and manage unforeseen events in the East China Sea between their navies. And all of those agreements have stalled since the dispute intensified. So there, there's a real potential political cost in terms of crisis management that the two sides are still paying as a result of what happened okay. in 2012. All righty. Can you tell us if there's any direct fallout other than obviously you've described the political tension there, but any other direct fallout with respect to the South China Sea dispute, that is the East China Sea? It's not clear if one could call this as fallout, but I think because of tensions in the East China Sea between China and Japan, Japan has been more willing to aid states who find themselves facing China in the South China Sea. Okay. So Japan has increased its aid to both the Philippines and Japan, and particularly increased aid for maritime security projects. Uh, several years ago, Japan committed to provide Philippines with 10 patrol boats for its Coast Guard, and I believe the first Several of those boats have now been delivered, and Japan has provided other kinds of economic support as well as diplomatic support. China opposes this. It wishes that states who aren't claimant, who don't have claims in the South China Sea would stay out of it. And so there is fear that these two may become linked such that if Japan adopts a more forward position in the South China Sea, China would have the option of retaliating against Japan in the East China Sea. And some people believe that this may explain partially why you had this sort of brief upsurge of Chinese vessels uh, with inside the territorial sea of the Senkaku Islands in sort of early to mid-August, oh. which was linked to Chinese fishing activity in the area. But it was the first time in uh, many years that so many fishing vessels and then Coast Guard vessels accompanying them had entered, entered within 12 nautical miles. Typically, what the Chinese Coast Guard has done is to patrol the area two or three times a month with three, sometimes four ships, sometimes two, and stay for roughly three hours. Oh, I see. Uh, so, so this is a real change in early August, but it appears not to have been a permanent change. Um, again, one, one factor was uh, Chinese fishing in the area, and this is uh, August, September is a prime time to fish around these islands, and also I think because Japan had been more vocal in support of the Philippines in the South China Sea, especially after the tribunal uh, rendered its award, that perhaps China felt less constrained in taking some stronger action <laughs> against Japan in the dispute where it actually has a direct conflict with China. Okay, so let's turn then to the disputes in the South China Sea. Maybe you can describe for the audience, you know, kind of what are the main issues in dispute in this very large area that is described as the South China Sea? Sure. So uh, the disputes in the South China Sea in some ways mirror those in the East China Sea. There are two different kinds of disputes which are distinct but closely related to each other. The first, again, would be a dispute over the territorial sovereignty of islands, rocks, and reefs. Um, there are three groups in particular that are under dispute. The Paracel Islands, uh, which is contested by or claimed by Vietnam and Taiwan but occupied by China. Uh, Scarborough Shoal, which is a, a dispute between China and the Philippines, and then the, the dispute over the Spratly Island, which uh, China, Taiwan, and Vietnam claim all of, and the Philippines, Malaysia, and Brunei claim some part of, mm -hmm. to varying degrees. And so you have, particularly in the Spratly Islands, what I like to call the world's most complicated territorial dispute, because you have <laughs> six different national actors, all of whom claim all are part of it, and there's no other territorial dispute like this anywhere around the world. Um, and then the second element, of course, has to do with uh, claims uh, to maritime entitlements or maritime zones under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. China claims uh, maritime entitlement under the convention from all these land features, both the Paracels, uh, Scarborough, and the Spratlys. Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, and 
the Philippines have emphasized not claims to maritime entitlements from these disputed land features, but instead uh, maritime entitlements from their coasts, which are undisputed. In other words, a 200 nautical mile EEZ from their coasts. I see. And the final wrinkle here is that China also has published a map that has nine dashed lines. There's a 10th dash that goes around Taiwan, but that's not commonly associated with the dashes uh, that depict Chinese claims in the South China Sea. However, mm-hmm. China has never defined at an official level in terms of a foreign ministry statement or a government statement what exactly the line means. Now, it could mean uh, that China simply claims territorial sovereignty over the enclosed land feature, so it would be part of that first dispute we talked about over sovereignty. Or it could mean that China claims some sort of maritime entitlements uh, within the nine-dash line to include historic rights to all the resources. But again, China has never said what that means. Mm -hmm. Uh, In response to the tribunal, however, China did say that it did claim historic rights within the South China Sea. It didn't link that with the nine-dash line, but um, it stands to reason that China probably is on the cusp of making an official claim, or that is their claim, but they just haven't decided uh, to publicize it yet. And I take it, in fact, that the nine-dash line was kind of first identified by the previous uh, Chinese government, that is the Kuomintang, back in the 1940s. That's right. The nine-dash line, or the dash line, actually had 11 dashes in the South China Sea when it was initially published, because there were two in the Tonkin Gulf between China and Vietnam, was uh, originally drafted and then published by the Republic of China. Uh, in 1947 and in 1948. And so after the Civil War ended and the nationalists completed their retreat to Taiwan, uh, the People's Republic of China continued to show uh, this dashed line on their maps. Mm-hmm. Because after all, they believe themselves to be the successor so, government of the Republic of China. Okay. However, in this intervening period, they didn't define what the line means. They just kept using it. Okay. Um, and clearly the law of the sea, in, in quote, is kind of intervening to all of this by establishing certain rights. So maybe we can uh, turn to the award. Now, this is a claim that was brought in 2013 under what technically Article 7 of the Law of the Sea by the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And so we've had this claim outstanding since then. So maybe you can help our audience understand kind of what was the impact of the award by this tribunal that was established under the Law of the Sea. Sure. So the tribunal concerns an arbitration case that was brought by the Philippines against China under the compulsory dispute resolution component of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Mm -hmm. The Philippines initiated the process in January of 2013. And by the end of uh, sort of August of 2013, the tribunal had been established and five members had been appointed to it. It then had to determine whether or not it had jurisdiction to rule on the submissions that the Philippines had made, which it did. And that took about, um, I don't know, a a year and a half or so. And then uh, it assessed the merits of the submissions that the Philippines made. And its it's award or judgment on the merits was issued on July 12th of this year, uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge win for the Philippines and a huge loss for China. One of the most important elements of the award was determining that under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, China could not claim historic rights to uh, the waters within the nine-dash line. And so it essentially, from a legal perspective, nullified or rejected any current or future Chinese claim to historic rights within the nine-dash line. And the tribunal is quite clear that when China acceded to the convention, 
having signed it in, I think China signed it in 1982 and then ratified it in 1994. I'm not quite sure of the dates, but in any event, when China acceded to the convention, which China has ratified, mm -hmm. uh, it extinguished all previous claims it might have had. In other words, the convention was designed to create a new regime to govern uh, the maritime space that uh, would replace whatever previous claims states would have. And there are a few smaller sort of exceptions that had to do with traditional fishing with inside the territorial waters of another state which I can get to in a minute. But in general, one of the most important elements of the award was to make quite clear that there is no legal basis for China to claim uh, historic rights to resources within the nine-dash line. The second element that also did not favor China was that the tribunal clarified under the convention what constitutes an island. Mm -hmm. Why this is important is that islands can generate a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, uh, but a rock um, cannot. <laughs> so both islands and rocks in the convention are, are refer to features that are permanently above high tide, um, mm -hmm. in contrast to what is often described as a low tide elevation, which is usually a drying coral reef that is, appears as a landform at low tide and then is again submerged or covered at high tide. So under the convention, if you're a rock, uh, which is defined as something that cannot sustain human habitation or economic life, uh, the state that claims the rock can only claim a 12 nautical mile territorial sea around the rock, but cannot claim a 200 nautical mile EQZ. Mm -hmm. By contrast, if you're an island, which implied that you could sustain human habitation or economic life of their own, then you could uh, generate a 200 nautical mile EQZ. But this element of the convention was actually very brief, and it's not entirely clear what uh, rules anyone could use to then determine if their land feature was a rock or an island and if it was entitled to... Yeah. Just a 12 nautical mile territorial sea or a much larger 200 nautical mile easy. And states being generally greedy actors in international politics have all decided that, uh, you, know, you know, to sort of claim 200 nautical mile easies from features that, you know, especially after this award, uh, it's pretty clear would not uh, be considered island under international law. Mm -hmm. So the tribunal came up with a new standard or new test, which says that the land feature and its natural conditions when it's above high tide has to be able to sustain a stable community of people or economic activity that is not dependent on external resources and is not purely extractive in nature. In other words, you need some kind of permanent community to reside on a land feature on an island in order to claim a 200 nautical mile EEZ around it. And in essence, the tribunal said that none of the features in the islands meet this test. Therefore, none of the land features that all of these states are competing to claim can generate a 200 nautical mile EEZ. Mm -hmm. And this is not just a huge victory for the Philippines, but it's actually a huge uh, win in a broader sense for all the coastal states in the South China Sea, because what it meant was that uh, China couldn't use the islands and rocks in the center of the South China Sea to claim a large EEZ, and the only legitimate or lawful EEZs would be those from a state's uh, coastline that extend 200 nautical miles into the South China Sea. Uh-huh. So, so yeah, go now, ahead. In, instead, if, if the middle of the South China Sea may have been a Chinese claim to easy or even maybe an easy claim by the Vietnamese, if it, they decide to clarify their own claim in that sense. Now what you have in the center of the South China Sea are high seas uh, that, that, that lie beyond any one state's 200 nautical mile limit, at least according to the tribunal. Hmm. Uh, so, so it's interesting in the discussion of, you know, who has historical rights or not and who has habitable uh, space islands that give these broader rights, you haven't raised at all the issue of the United States. So where is the United States in all of this? 
Well, the United States was not a party to the arbitration, so mm -hmm. the only parties uh, were China and the Philippines. And the ruling is final and binding, but only upon those two countries. Uh, or the award is final and binding, although only on those two countries. But it mm -hmm. does set a broader precedent for what kinds of claims to maritime entitlements from what kinds of land features uh, would be lawful. If there are similar cases in the future, uh, not just in the South China Sea, but elsewhere. But technically speaking, the tribunal's award is only binding on the two parties. The United States, since tensions have escalated in the South China Sea, from roughly 2009-2010, has pretty consistently pushed for peaceful dispute resolution um, and a peaceful settlement of disputes. And after the Philippines decided to pursue arbitration, uh, the United States provided its own sort of rhetorical and political support for the Philippine position because the United States viewed that it was an example of peaceful dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. China, I should add, rejected it from the beginning. I didn't mention this earlier, but they refused to participate in the entire process. So they did not participate in the formation of the tribunal and they did not participate in the phase that assessed whether or not the tribunal had jurisdiction and did not participate in the phase in which the tribunal assessed the merits of the claim. And so China sought to sort of reject this from the very beginning without even knowing what the final conclusion would be, although it turns out it was quite negative for China. By so they, just so I understand, they did not provide this uh, tribunal with any submission missions on their positions? Not through the rules of procedure governing the tribunal. What okay. they did do was to publish uh, several position papers, and uh, Chinese scholars published several books on related issues mm -hmm. that uh, were, in essence, making the Chinese case, you could call it an amicus brief of sorts, uh, yep. but, but without actually participating uh, in the tribunal, which means being or making themselves available both to make their arguments, but then also be questioned uh, by the tribunal themselves about the merits of their case. And so the tribunal was, I think, duty-bound to sort of take into account the Chinese position. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it consulted these documents. But unlike the Philippines, who did participate and could then answer questions that the tribunal had, China was unable uh, to do so. And I actually think from China's perspective, this was a huge uh, miscalculation. Even if they rejected the idea of doing so, they would have probably been in a better position had they participated at least through the jurisdictional phase because they would have been able to appoint one of the five members to the tribunal and they would have been able to have influence and I think maybe even veto the other three of the five members. So the way these tribunals work is each side gets to appoint one arbitrator and then in this case, the president of the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea appointed the other three arbitrators, but they do so in consultation with the parties to the mm -hmm. arbitration. And since China wasn't <clears throat> a part of the arbitration, they couldn't participate in the selection of the judges. Mm. Uh, so from the very beginning, China did not handle this in a way that might have maximized their interests. So in a way, where does this leave the U.S. and China? I noticed that uh, Xi Jinping and President Obama, I think on Saturday, just before the G20 meeting in Hangzhou, had a private meeting with the appropriate uh, ministers. And apparently a lot of the discussion they had, that is between the presidents, was around uh, the South China Sea. So what were they discussing? Um, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. to be honest, right? I mean, yeah. I wasn't there. Uh, we all saw the press statement that came out afterwards. Uh, yeah. I think the U.S. response to the award was sort of a wait-and-see response. Since the U.S. wasn't a party to the award, and since the award is final and binding only on the two parties and has no enforcement mechanism for third parties, including the United States, Right. Um, I think the U.S. decided that it wasn't going to shoulder the task for itself of actually being the enforcer, and instead 
give space for uh, China to reassess its position and give space for China and the Philippines to hold talks. And mm -hmm. the U.S. seems to be continuing with that posture, although certainly uh, the U.S. has indicated uh, unequivocally that it supports the award and views that it's final and binding on the parties. Okay. But I do uh, understand that the U.S. has, certainly in the last while during some of these tensions and prior to the award being issued, that they had what has been described, what the U.S. military describes as FONOPs. And mm -hmm. what do the FONOPs, that is the Freedom of Navigation Operations, what did they relate to from a U.S. position? So the FONOP program uh, began in the late 1970s, and it was designed to challenge what the United States believed to be excessive maritime claims, which then evolved to be claims that were inconsistent with the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea. Mm -hmm. And this concludes both uh, how the claim is drawn, whether or not a particular feature may be entitled to a 200 nautical mile EEZ or just a 12 nautical mile territorial sea, but also can include uh, challenging whatever restrictions often that are from a coastal state's domestic legislation that try to restrict navigation in any way. Okay. So in the case of the South China Sea, China requires uh, that states, especially foreign military vessels when transiting through their 12 nautical mile territorial sea request prior permission. And the convention itself does not include a clause about prior permission. So from the U.S. perspective, that's an excessive maritime claim. Uh, so within the 12 nautical mile territorial sea, there's no provision within the convention for states to uh, restrict the navigation of naval vessels in that way. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of basic genesis of the Freedom of Navigation Operations Program. Starting in last fall, the U.S. began to conduct in a very public way uh, freedom of navigation of operations in the South China Sea, targeting in particular Chinese restrictions on innocent passage uh, that I just mentioned. Uh, what the U.S. has not done is conduct a freedom of navigation operation after the tribunal's ruling. Mm -hmm. uh, one element of the tribunal's ruling was that uh, low tide elevations, including those occupied by China, such as Mr. Free, were not entitled even to a 12 nautical mile territorial sea. And so many analysts and experts have anticipated that the U.S. might conduct a freedom of navigation operation within 12 nautical miles of one of these features, probably mischief reef, in order to provide kind of indirect support for the tribunal's ruling. Since the tribunal ruled it wasn't entitled to a maritime zone, there should be no restrictions on a U.S. vessel or a naval vessel from another country entering within 12 nautical miles. And I take it the United States has not provided pre-notification to Chinese authorities. No, they haven't. Okay. Um, typically, when a front office conducted, I believe the naval vessel tasked with the operation conducts the operation, and afterwards the coastal state is demarched by the United States or notified diplomatically that the operation was conducted and what excessive claim from a U.S. perspective was being challenged. Typically, those diplomatic communications are, are private, and what has been unique about the Freedom of Navigation Operation Program just in the last 12 months in the South China Sea that's been much more public. So the U.S. has announced, or it's basically leaked, and then the U.S. has had to announce that they did conduct these operations. Um, the United States conducts them every year against excessive claims of the United States and against other countries, but most of the time it never becomes public. Okay. So one last a kind of big question here. Recently, uh, the Australian strategist Hugh White of ANU Universities suggested that with respect to uh, U.S. policy in East Southeast Asia, the great question for him is whether the United States is willing to go to war with China to preserve U.S. 
in quotes, primacy. So is that correct? I mean, is, according to him, China will only back away if it believes that the United States is prepared, in quote, to go to war. I mean, is that the nature of the situation between the United States and China in the South China Sea? No, I, I don't think that comes close to describing the situation between the U.S. and China in the South China Sea. I mean, clearly, uh, Hugh White is working with an abstract and highly simplified model on how it might apply in any particular circumstances unclear, and especially in the South China Sea, in part or especially because the United States is not a party to the disputes. Mm -hmm. It's a party to the U.N. Convention, thus has a stake in how the convention is implemented in the region, but it's not a party. It has no claims to territorial sovereignty. It has no claims to uh, maritime jurisdiction uh, in this area. It's simply a user of the South China Sea and not an owner of the South China Sea. Um, one could envision a military competition that did sort of begin to spiral. And uh, although, again, I don't think these islands are particularly important or important at all for the United States, that they could take upon a greater value and then uh, become the issue over which some kind of military conflict occurs, although whether that would sort of become a full-blown war or be a struggle for primacy, to me, is at least unclear. Mm -hmm. China has, for the time being, capped its level of effort uh, below sort of the active use of armed force and below uh, sort of evicting other states from the land features that they occupy, which indicates to me that they're not looking for a direct armed conflict with the other claimants, that, which in the case of the Philippines would quite likely ultimately involve the United States. And the United States at the same time has made quite clear that it, it adopts a position of neutrality regarding the underlying territorial claims. Right. So who knows how the future uh, will unfold. I think it would be quite unfortunate if the South China Sea came to dominate U.S.-China relations. And if it did, then perhaps the situation might move closer in the direction of what Hugh White has written or suggested. But I think we are, are far from that point, And there's still probably a lot of room for a diplomacy to take place between the parties who have direct conflicts with each other, but also between uh, the U.S. and China regarding how they assess each other's interests in the area. Okay. Well, I really want to thank you, Taylor, for your willingness to discuss all these issues. They seem to have great import and uh, certainly have been followed by major news outlets, obviously in China, but also in the United States. So I want to thank you very much. And Thank you, of course, for writing that article on the East China Sea for us at Global Summitry. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This Global Summitry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.